Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 237, Dissolution and Destruction. I have a sponsor, folks, and in fact I am wearing their product right now. They have three main features. Firstly, Studio Regent wireless headphones are just that. They have no wires. I love that. Secondly, they look great, are super cool, which means I look super cool, which I'm told is a first. And thirdly, they sound as clear as a bell, all of which means it's very good news that there is a special 15% discount for all of you. Just go to studiosweden.com and enter England when you order and you'll get the discount. Starting this week for members, we're having a Thomas Cromwell Bonanza, a whopping great big episode in two parts, and then a members-only quiz and another coin giveaway. Giving a coin away is mainly because of Shane, who thought last time he'd won, only to find it was a different Shane. So, Shane, here's another chance. There are two coins from Simon at Hall's Hammered Coins available, an Edward II farthing and a cut coin, a voided long cross from the reign of Henry III, and then a much more recent George V threepence that Robertson very kindly gave me. So, just go to the normal place, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Now, I try, of course, to find nice dramatic titles for each episode, though I know from my publishing days that this is not a personal talent. When you've published a book called Passive, Active and Non-Reciprocal Microwave Filters, you have to accept that catchy titles are just not your forte. But, as I came up with this one, I thought, oh yes, that's nice and punchy, before reflecting that both dissolutions and destructions have just become part of the furniture now. It is a brutal age we are going through. Anyway, it's time for some more and possibly the last instalment of the dissolution story at least, though I doubt we've had the last execution. Last time then, the bishop's book confirmed that the evangelicals were still on top, still pushing forward. It's important to say that this is a war of attrition. There's no great revolution in doctrine as there had been in Lutheran Germany. It's trench warfare. Some reinterpretations here, a bit of nip and tuck there, some sacraments de-emphasised a bit there, a wiggle here. But the evangelicals were getting used to the feeling of winning those doctrinal victories. The dissolution of the monasteries could only help, of course. Right up to 1537, the official fiction was maintained. This was about reform, not abolition. No, no, no. And yes, of course, the proceeds of the dissolution will absolutely go to good causes. Education and the poor, that sort of thing. But very few people were fooled as the smaller monasteries disappeared and those promises were broken. If the king had some reservations about some of Cranmer's evangelical beliefs and reaffirmed many elements of traditional religion in his annotation of the bishop's book, he thoroughly bought into the destruction of the monasteries and images 
and as a result, the suppression of pilgrimage. Partly this was the filthy lucre, but partly the pilgrimage of grace had convinced him that the monks were the least worthy, the least loyal of his subjects, and that much of the resistance to religious change and his supremacy was the fault of the monks. All these troubles have ensued by the solicitation and traitorous conspiracies of the monks. The very public criticism of the veneration of saints, relics, purgatory and pilgrimage meant that by 1537, morale in the monastic movement was at an all-time low. Recruitment had hit an all-time low and there appeared the phenomenon of voluntary surrenders. Now this seems to have started with an idea by the Earl of Sussex. Sussex had been ordered by the king to work with the Earl of Derby in Lancashire to mop up the remains of the pilgrimage of grace and he'd made a compromise suggestion to a mildly traitorous prior who needed a way out of his mild treachery that didn't involve watching his entrails being burned in front of his horrified eyes. The idea was that he'd give over his monastery to the king, he'd surrender it, and in return he'd be spared and given a stipend to live on. When the option involved said entrail frying, they seemed like a good deal to the prior, and as a result, in the words of Captain Picard, he agreed to make it so. The next to go the same way was Charterhouse. The house had a history of resistance to the royal supremacy and its prior had been executed for his refusal to agree back in 1535. Spotting an opportunity, Cromwell insisted that all the monks there were ordered to make that commitment to the royal supremacy again and in his malice his suspicions yielded fruit. Three priests, a deacon and six lay brothers just couldn't make themselves do it. And while plenty of others did so, they actually begged God's forgiveness for swearing against their beliefs. But the ten refuseniks were carted off to Newgate Prison. There, they starved to death. This was not because they couldn't buy food, it was because they were unable to reach the food on account of being chained to the wall. It's a close call, but I'm not sure that the entrail option wouldn't have been better. Unsurprisingly, Henry's treatment of the Carthusians, the very elite of English monasticism, horrified opinion all over Europe. The remnants of the house surrendered themselves to the king's mercy. Over the rest of 1537, three more houses took this same route of self-surrender and the neon lights were flashing over the way forward. By January 1538, it was widely believed that the end of the monastic movement was at hand and this despite consistent official denials. In March 1538, Cromwell wrote to all of the monasteries that the king does not intend in any way to trouble you or devise for the suppression of any religious house that standeth, except they shall desire it themselves. Lord knows how long was Cromwell's nose by the time he'd finished that circular. And actually what may have prompted the circular was the practice for monasteries to sell off their land, demoralised as they were. This seems to put Cromwell and Henry in a bit of a panic that the value of the monastic estate would trickle away before Henry could get his pudgy little hands on it. But as 1538 drew on, voluntary surrenders turned from a trickle into a flood. The statements of surrender were often quite extreme. It's like a form of public bullying, since they were probably dictated by the commissioners and the poor abbots and priors not only had to witness the end of their contemplative life and the physical destruction of their house, but had to wallow in public humiliation as well. 
Perfection of Christian living doth not consist in dumb ceremonies, wearing of a grey coat, disguising ourselves after strange fashions, ducking and becking, in girding ourselves with a girdle full of knots, and other like papistical ceremonies. Of course, Cromwell's intention with these rather pitiful surrenders, like the exposure of the fraud around many relics, was to discredit the whole monastic movement. The general assumption is often now that Cromwell and the king always intended to close all the monasteries and that all the deniables were just fluff and misdirection. Well, that could be the case. But probably it isn't the case for the king. It seems likely that he only decided that later in 1538, because he refounded two monasteries at the start of 1538. This must be some sort of record, since his refounded monastery at Bisham lasted less than a year. Meanwhile, the discrediting of saints and relics continued. At St Paul's Cross, a preacher called Hilsey announced to a shocked audience that the relic of Christ's blood in the shrine at Hales in Gloucestershire was butter duck's blood. I tend to believe he was probably right that it wasn't really Christ's blood at all, but just to be fair to both sides, I'm not sure how, in 1538, you would tell the difference. But while this kind of revelation was shocking... What really hurt the majority was the extension of the iconoclasm to the heart of parish worship. Images, quote, abused with pilgrimage offerings must be taken down and destroyed. No lights were to burn in front of images other than on the rude loft before the crucifix. This was one of the most routine of religious acts, lighting a candle in front of the statue of a saint. And this meant an absolutely profound change of age-old habits. Now the things that people had been used to do as an integral part of life and worship had suddenly been classified idolatry and superstition. But the attack on relics and saints was tactically a good call, because it was pretty difficult to argue when the breast milk of the Virgin at Walsingham was found to be chalk. This was the most vulnerable aspect of late medieval religion, open to mockery. Cromwell's propaganda was successful and had an impact, Religious strife and contention was no longer restricted to the rarefied halls of Lambeth Palace. It reached down to all levels of society, and far from being just London or the port towns. So, for example, a Rotherham schoolmaster, William Seans, mocked his parish priest's defiant declaration that he would believe as his father had done. Thy father was a liar and is in hell, and so is my father in hell also. My father never knew scripture, and now it has come forth. For Henry, all this reformation was a cleansing, a reaffirmation of an ancient truth. It wasn't new. For most of his subjects, it was the direct opposite. It was a constant stream of change and novelty. And novelty was not a concept much beloved of medieval folk. They'd have been truly shocked by the assault on tradition. Unity, stability, tradition, conformity, these were the values that they had held dear. By the end of 1538, the vast majority of monasteries were gone. Not only that, but they'd been joined by the friaries, almost 200 of them. The very last abbeys survived until 1540, but these were very much outliers. Many monasteries were completely destroyed, all their priceless treasures and artwork destroyed or removed, walls levelled and stone carted off elsewhere to be used for local housing. Other times, ruins were left as a reminder of their fallen glory, or rather, the fundamental wrongness of the monastic ideas in the evangelical view. Sometimes, local gentry or communities bought the Abbey Church. I happened to go to Dorchester Abbey over Christmas to listen to the Messiah. 
The Abbey Church survives because the local community bought it to be their parish church. Other places, such as Laycock Abbey, for example, which was bought by Edward Sharrington, were incorporated into the houses of the gentry. The historian Susan Brigden takes the approach of many when she wrote of the undoubted dislocation and sense of loss that accompanied the dissolution of the monasteries and the wider outlawing of the veneration of relics which accompanied it. The people were forcibly deprived not only of numinous artefacts, symbols of a world unseen, but also objects of beauty in lives of privation. Yet even the loss of such treasures was not as traumatic as the shattering of the beliefs they symbolised. The desecration threatened the end of mediation, propitiation and spiritual solace, and very many were left bewildered and bereft. It's difficult to disagree that the mass destruction of irreplaceable art and traditional beliefs would have affected very many very deeply. I wonder a bit if we underestimate a little the ability of people to understand the arguments involved, but the dislocation must have been immense. If nothing else, 10,000 monks and nuns had been displaced. Others have noted that the evangelicals, and in the longer term the Protestant Reformation, replaced a religion of vision with a religion of the word, and that given the levels of illiteracy, the transformation took some time to offer an alternative to most people. It is indeed at this time that Cromwell went one step further. Not only was the Matthew Bible available, now an English Bible was produced specifically to be placed in every parish church. The clergy were therefore ordered to provide one book of the Bible of the largest volume in English and at the same set up in some convenient place within the said church that ye have care of, whereas your parishioners may most commodiously resort to the same and read it. This was called the Great Bible, since it was a large format designed for reading from the pulpit, and once again, it's primarily Tyndale's translation. There's a rather delightful frontispiece which has King Henry handing down the Bible to his people, and the printing and final editing was organised by Miles Coverdale. The Great Bible would remain the official version until the appearance of the Bishop's Bible in 1568. As a footnote, this is also when Cromwell ordered every clergyman to keep one book or register wherein ye shall write the day and year of every wedding, christening and burying made within your parish for your time. Which means that while obviously it's quite right that the Venomous Bede should be the patron saint of historians, if saints could have handmaidens or something, then Thomas Cromwell should be the deputy patron saint of social historians who have had reason to thank him ever since and ancestor hunters as well, of course. The use of monastic lands for education and the poor basically never happened, and this, of course, was Cobbett's angry complaint, for many of the monastic lands fell into the hands of the local gentry and nobles in something of a feeding frenzy. The surface of the waters boiled, as Cromwell himself made massive advantage of the sale, sharing the lands and revenues of the abbeys of Lewis and Castleacre with the Duke of Norfolk, for example. The Duke of Northumberland got his hands on 18 foundations. Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, snaffled 30. Cromwell received what were frankly begging letters from local notables, pleading not to be left out of the bonanza. City corporations sometimes made purchases, and sometimes lawyers, doctors, merchants all clubbed together into syndicates and purchased land as an investment. There are just a few mitigating or balancing comments you might make 
As far as providing for the poor is concerned, it had always been the responsibility of private individuals and the church to provide for the poor. The church was still there to provide for the poor, and as we've noted in a previous episode, somewhere between 5 and 7% only of monastic income actually went to the poor anyway, something like 9,000 quid a year. The withdrawal of this would have been locally painful, but not nationally that significant. Meanwhile, the 1530s, although reasonably prosperous, saw the start of two phenomena. Inflation, something almost unheard of in the medieval world, and population growth at last. It will take the 1540s for this to really take off, but already by the mid-1530s there was a noticeable increase in the numbers of the poor. England at any time and place would have struggled to deal with this problem, with no understanding of economics to help them. Cromwell was aware of the problem of poor relief provided by the monasteries and the growth in the poor, and he did take action. He did it in typically radical fashion by making the state responsible for the poor rather than the church. Now, there had been an attempt before to deal with vagrancy, because the whole medieval state was built on the idea that peasants stayed exactly where they were born, worked hard and then died. They didn't wander about. And so vagabonds were not viewed with any sympathy. They were against the law of things. In 1495, therefore, the law stated that if a vagabond turned up in your village, he or she was inevitably an idle so-and-so. Therefore, give them a good whipping, pop them in the socks for three days and then send them back home to their hundred court. No one had any concept that someone might not be working because they wanted to, but couldn't find any to do. Cromwell tried twice to deal with this problem. In 1531, he took the traditional view. Sturdy beggars, i.e. able-bodied men, were assumed to be just lazy, so fine, give them a whipping, send them on their way. But the disabled poor were now allowed a place to go and beg in each town. It at least recognised that there was a problem. But his second hack at it in his poor law of 1536 was significantly more radical. The parish was now required by law to ensure that the disabled poor in their parish were cared for so that they need not beg. And a scheme was proposed to provide employment for what were called sturdy beggars. Now, the Act also contains a lot of whipping. This is not the Act of a gentle do-gooder, never fear. But for the first time, it has been acknowledged that the state had a responsibility to deal with the poor. First time for that. Previously, as I say, it had been private charity, the church only. Secondly, it acknowledged that there were people out there who wanted to work but could not do so, and needed help in being able to do so. Now, by modern standards, Tudor poor laws are pretty hideous. But their existence is a fundamental change in attitude. And it was Cromwell's act that stood at the head of that principle. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It might be noted, while we're on mitigations, that although the Court of Augmentations was run by a man who actually might be an out-and-out villain, Richard Rich, the process was efficiently and effectively run. And while it's true to say that the hopes of radicals and conservatives alike were disappointed in the use of the proceeds of the sale, 
some of the money did end up re-endowing the church estate. So, eight monastic churches became cathedrals, along with all the cathedral staff and schools and choirs. Six new dioceses were created, the first in many centuries. The most obvious absurdity had always been the English Diocese of Lincoln, which stretched all the way down to the Thames. Two new dioceses of Oxford and Peterborough were created from parts of that, and on a more local level, many assets were taken and used locally. So I've mentioned places like Dorchester Abbey. Sometimes local schools were also translated, and certainly no one's going to argue that the 16th century saw a slowdown in the provision of education, very much the opposite. Cranmer himself made sure that the proceeds of the dissolution in Kent were used to endow schools and priests, albeit to a much smaller extent than he'd planned before Cromwell got hold of his plans. Two more arguments to mitigate the modern disapproval of the dissolution, while I rename myself Chief Apologist for Thomas Cromwell. One is that I was unaware that fully one-third of the income from the monasteries was retained and used to provide stipends for monks. £5 was the average, while seniors got 10% of the income of each monastery. It was a pretty good deal. The losers in this, though, were women. Nuns were required to return to their families, which must often just have been a bad joke if they'd lived in a nunnery for most of their lives. Finally, I just wanted to point out, not sure if I've done this so before, that while there is a temptation to see all of this as simple greed by the king, it is not as simple as that. There was a long and honourable tradition of questioning why the church should have so much obvious, outrageous and excessive wealth. There was equally an honourable, if rather more recent, tradition from writers on the theory of commonwealth that enriching the prince was the right way to thereby enrich the commonwealth. Thomas Cromwell would have read and known the work of Messilius of Padua, a 14th century writer who argued for the supremacy of state over church. And he would have known of the work of Commonwealth writers who argued that the health of all members of the Commonwealth depended on the ability of the king to have the resources to enrich its members. Let me stop there. I'm not saying that the destruction of the monasteries is not a hideously destructive experience for many, that incalculable works of art were not lost, that the landscape of England was not disfigured, and probably a majority of lives dislocated. A particularly tragic loss was the loss of many monastic libraries, for example. All I'm seeking to do is balance that story a little. It would seem sensible to briefly discuss another social impact of the dissolution. The monasteries of England by 1530 owned something like 15-20% to 20 of all the land in England. During the dissolution, and in the 1540s as Henry paid for his wars in France, most of this land was brought by the nobility, the gentry, gentlemen and the yeomanry. This constituted the largest transfer of land since the Norman Conquest and before modern times, and it served to enrich these social classes and expand them. Now when I say expand, don't get me wrong, Land was still held by a vanishingly small percentage of the population, maybe 2%, but it's still a larger small percentage of the population than it had been. Many yeomen, for example, simply bought their farms rather than being tenants to their monastery. In Essex, before the dissolution, 12% of the land was held by the nobility, 52% was held by the gentry. After the dissolution, the nobility's share rose from 12% to 17%, but the gentry's grew from 52 to 72. The economic use of this land would now be driven by the needs of the laity rather than the church, and the economic influence of the church was massively reduced. The transfer of wealth would also have an impact on the relationship between monarch and people. 
Now, Cromwell had thought to permanently endow the king. That doesn't mean that he wanted to set the king apart from his people to remove them from their society and interdependence. So, for example, Cromwell seems to have convinced Henry that he was at his most powerful as king in Parliament rather than king alone. Cromwell always believed in the Commonwealth and that the king was part of that Commonwealth. Nonetheless, he sought to endow the monarch so that the king could be powerful and independent of the need to go cap in hand to Parliament. Henry, on the other hand, stuck his hands firmly into the sweetie jar, grabbed all the sticky, sickly sweets and ripped his hand out of the jar in his excitement to shove them all into his mouth. Essentially, with his financial future assured, he went and blew it all on the 16th century equivalent of a Porsche, otherwise known as war in France. As a result, the opposite occurred as Cromwell had intended. Long term, the balance of power between monarch and his people shifted towards the people in a way that would not happen in France or the Empire until close to the 19th century. And maybe that has an impact on how England's constitution develops. Don't get me wrong. Tudor monarchs will always dominate their parliaments. Henry VIII and Elizabeth in particular. This pair, father and daughter, were masters of propaganda and the judicious use of magnificent ceremony, art and display to win awe and loyalty. In our modern-day horror at Henry's character, we can easily forget that this was not how most people viewed him at the time. He had enormous charisma, every inch a king. His daughter Mary, while not quite having Elizabeth's pizzazz with the ceremony and so on, was to prove in the Guildhall during Wyatt's rebellion that she had all that Tudor charisma when she needed it. But in the hands of the less adept king, Charles I, shall we say, just for the sake of argument, the Commons in Parliament might learn to flex their muscles. Furthermore, this vast transfer of land effectively made the nobility and gentry of England wedded to Protestantism, or at least gave an enormous disincentive to the re-establishment of Catholicism. Now, that's a big statement, but the implication of the return of the power of the Pope and the return of pilgrimage, purgatory and all that could well be that those lands would have to be handed back. Now, as it happens, Mary and the Pope would be wise to this danger in 1544, but for those gentry who were unable to predict the future... This would be a massive risk associated with the return of the Pope. He might want his lands back. For the vast majority, as Susan Brigden wrote earlier, the dissolution, the banning of the veneration of relics and saints, the iconoclasm, the end of pilgrimage, caused misery and dislocation, and Henry's Reformation deeply divided his people, which would take many decades to work through. But for some, and for a growing number, it was a liberation. For example... There lived in London a certain bricklayer called John Harry Dance. Now, Harry Dance had an English Bible and the ability to read it. He decided that there was now no earthly reason why he shouldn't preach the Gospels just like any priest. And so John Harry Dance would frequently throw open his window and declaim onto the streets for anyone that wanted to hear. Or he'd open the gates to his garden and invite passers-by to come and join him and declaim the Gospels from his tree. I suspect he'd have had a lot of good and maybe bad-natured abuse for a while. But he began to become something of a local celebrity. People began to gather, and they began to rather enjoy his sermons. Sometimes his sermons attracted up to a thousand people. Now, this was just not on. This was not the way it worked. The ordinary people of this world were supposed to accept what was handed down to them by the great and the good. So, local clergy and some of Harry Dance's neighbours told to pipe down stop doing the job of priests and stick to laying bricks. 
but Harry Dance had taken the spiritual equivalent of Benzedrine and there was no way he was going back to being a simple brickie. No way, Jose. And he shot back that it was no marvel if the world doth persecute holy men and set us forth of light. But the world wasn't quite ready yet for John Harry Dance. Cranmer came down on him like a ton of bricks. Ha <laughs> ha. He was forced to recant and carry the faggot at St Paul's Cross. But John Harry Dance's time was coming. But it was not coming yet. All of this was anathema to Henry. Henry might have accepted some elements of evangelism in his desire to reform the Catholic Church and return to a purer time, but neither he nor the vast majority of evangelicals had any interest in diversity, debate, difference, uniformity, quietness and agreement. Those were the natural order of things. And uniformity appeared to be very conspicuously lacking at the moment. And in September 1538, a letter arrived that emphasised that very point. A letter from the German princes warning of the radicalism of the Anabaptists and that Anabaptists were saying that England was their friend of their creed and were present in England in great numbers. In Henry's mind, the priority was about to swing from desire to reform to desire for tradition. It wasn't helped by the news in July 1538 that Charles V and Francis I had reached a truce. Now, nobody likes the idea of their enemies becoming friends. Henry would also have heard that during the negotiations, the two men refused to sit in the same room together. So much did they now hate each other. But nonetheless, Henry's thoughts and worries turned to the prospect of a combined French and German alliance against England. The external diplomatic situation will have an increasing influence on religious reform in England from here on in, with Henry desperate to prove to the world that he was a good Catholic king, really. No need to invade here for religious reasons, nothing to see here. At court, the strength of the Conservatives also grew at the same time. It was helped by the return of their great champion, Stephen Gardiner. Gardiner was a clever and effective opponent of Cromwell and religious reform, and while Henry would always be suspicious of him, he was convincing. In addition, one of the problems that evangelicals faced was that they themselves were not united. Just as the veneration of relics and saints was the soft underbelly of traditional practice, the evangelicals' own weakness was the breadth of different views and extremism. Evangelicals were quick to condemn and report Anabaptists, as were any conservative, because they knew Anabaptists harmed their cause and reputation. And in the theological melee, the sacrament of the mass was at the forefront of debate, particularly transubstantiation, the idea that the bread and the wine are transformed into the blood and body of Christ during the mass. Tyndale warned his fellow evangelicals to stay away from that topic because it was so divisive. Nowhere in the bishop's book was transubstantiation questioned, even though it's probable by this stage that Cranmer himself was privately convincing himself against the doctrine. But try as they might, evangelicals were no more successful at imposing uniformity within themselves than was Henry generally. And their problem was thrown into stark relief with the trial of John Lambert. Lambert was a schoolmaster who denied transubstantiation. Lambert had form. He'd been imprisoned for heresy by Thomas More, for example. He was clearly an argumentative soul and took up the debating cudgels at a church in London and Cranmer and Cromwell themselves moved in to have him arrested. The remarkable thing here was that the king himself got involved and conducted Lambert's trial and questioning himself. The supreme head of the church, dressed in white as a symbol of purity, 
questioned Lambert for three hours. Tell me plainly whether you say it is the body of Christ. It is not his body. I deny it. Will you live or die? You yet have a free choice. I commit my soul to God and my body to the king's mercy. That being the case, you must die. I will not be patron to heretics. Lambert burned. He burned in a particularly grisly way. I don't know if I've yet said, but if you had a sympathetic executioner, they'd hang a pot of gunpowder from your neck so that hopefully the fire would quickly ignite it, blow you to smithereens before it all got too hideous. For some reason, Lambert picked executioners who were anything but friendly. So, as the fire licked at Lambert's legs, they actually thrust pikestaffs under his arms and lifted him above the fire so he'd take longer to die. Hideous. Lambert was equal to it all. None but the Christ! None but the Christ! He screamed and was thrust back into the flames to die. Now, Lambert's case is often shown to be evidence of the king's growing concern about reform. In fact, it doesn't need to be anything of the sort. Lambert's claims about transubstantiation were denied by evangelical and conservative alike at the time, so there was nothing novel here in his trial. But nonetheless, resistance to reform and insistence on its dangers grew more widely at court, and the conservative faction worked on the king's mind. Cromwell knew that the reformist cause was vulnerable and that he must act to defend the evangelical cause. And so it was that on the 3rd of November 1538, the news exploded across the court, ran through the servants' halls, the board of the green, the household and privy chambers, the household out of court, out and about into the streets of London, that one of the greatest men in the country, closest to the king, Henry Courtney, Marquess of Exeter, had been seized and accused of treason and arrested. Next week is a week of rest and relaxation, far away from the stress, death and destruction of Tudor England, although there will be a member shedcast on English place names, the third of three. And then, in two weeks' time, we'll hear how the struggle between Cromwell and the Evangelicals and the Conservatives, led by the Bishop of Winchester, Stephen Gardiner, intensifies. Until then, members don't forget the Thomas Cromwell Jamboree, and non-members, well, Maybe this is the time to hop across the Rubicon and join us over here. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for so much for your comments and the general taking part on Facebook, website, iTunes. And on the latter, I'm intrigued to know why anyone would call themselves Gucci Melon Balls, or indeed, what a Gucci Melon Ball is. Whether or not there is an answer out there, good luck, and I hope you have a lovely fortnight. on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about quince they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.